Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, Professor Oliver Sarter reviews key data on new and emerging data that addresses key clinical questions on the use of radiopharmaceuticals for patients with advanced prostate cancer, presented at the ESMO 2023 Congress. Professor Sarta also discusses with Professor Francesco Cecchi and Dr. Heather Jacine how these data may apply in clinical practice. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Advanced Accelerator Applications. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. I would like to welcome Professor Sarta to review his selected presentations from ESMO 2023 on the topic of refining use of PSMA-targeted radiopharmaceuticals through optimal patient selection. Hi, I'm Dr. Oliver Sarter. I'm a medical oncologist at the Mayo Clinic, long interested in prostate cancer and radiopharmaceuticals, and we'll start by looking at PSMA-targeted radiopharmaceuticals and optimal patient selection. There's three abstracts that I'll be covering, and the first two are going to be related to radiopharmaceuticals, and the third is actually going to be looking at localized prostate cancer in a bit more detail. Uh, the first of these abstracts is going to be looking at a vision post hoc analysis, and I suspect that many of you may know about the vision trial, but it's prospective randomized phase three trial that looked at lutetium plus standard of care versus standard of care for patients with metastatic CRPC. And in this particular abstract, it turns out that we're going to be looking at neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, which I'll simply call NLR, and lymphopenia and how it plays out with regards to prognosis. Now, one of the things about vision that's quite nice is that there is a strong data set, not only for the radiopharmaceutical, but also for the control arm, which would be the standard of care administered to everybody. And it turns out that NLR is important. And for those with a relatively low NLR, and now we're going to be talking about less than three or a high NLR greater than or equal to three, there are significant distinctions in both arms with regard to overall survival, radiographic progression-free survival. And it turns out that if you just look at the absolute lymphocyte count, and those with a low absolute lymphocyte count did worse. So those with a high NLR are going to be doing worse. Those with a low absolute lymphocyte count are going to be doing worse. And again, this is true for both the RPFS and the OS. And it's true for both the control arms as well as the radiopharmaceutical arms as a whole. Now, the NLR and absolute lymphocyte count has been looked at in other settings. And I'll simply say that it, it is not surprising to me that we would be seeing these effects. Uh, by the way, it's also true for PSA response and objective response, which is, again, compatible with more activity 
and those with a lower NLR and a higher absolute lymphocyte count. One of the things that's a little bit interesting, and I had not seen much in the way of this before, is that the grade 3 and 4 AEs and serious AEs also seem to follow that those um, with the high NLR had a higher, although not necessarily statistically significant, grade 3, 4 AEs. Those with a lower absolute lymphocyte count also had the, um, uh, the, the greater propensity for grade 3, 4 AEs, as well as SAE, serious adverse events. Now we're going to move on to a second abstract, this one looking at radium-223. And this is a secondary analysis of a prospective observational study in which 122 patients received radium. And retrospectively, the patients were divided into two groups. Those that had a PSMA PET are those that had conventional imaging. And they're looking at things like biochemical responses as well as overall survival. And it turns out that those individuals who were selected for PSMA PET actually had a longer survival. And that may not be totally surprising because a lot of these patients had a lower volume of metastatic disease. So there could be some confounding variables. And if you look at the um, next particular um, uh, abstract in this, in this section, we're going to be looking at refining risk factors for those receiving radiotherapy and long-term manager deprivation and looking at a whole series of individual patient data from randomized control trials. And this work was performed by the ICECAP Consortium. And it is interesting that they were able to accumulate over 3,600 patients from 10 randomized trials and incorporate the individual data. Now, when looking at these individual data, they looked at risk factors, the most important of which were Gleason greater than 8, T3, T4, PSA more than 20, are clinically node-positive disease. And there were a whole series of endpoints they looked at, metastasis-free survival, prostate cancer-specific mortality, overall survival. And by analyzing each of these, they could see that there were factors that were more important than others. But I think the coup de grace, the actual presentation that makes the most sense for this particular ice cap analysis is looking at the number of risk factors and how they accumulate and affect five-year outcomes, whether or not those five-year outcomes be metastasis-free survival, time to metastatic disease, five-year prostate cancer-specific mortality, five-year overall survival, and those individuals with either node-positive disease, and remember this is conventional imaging node-positive, are those who had two to three risk factors performed worse than those who had only one. If you're designing clinical trials, I think this is important because in five years, you could potentially reach some endpoints. Now, from these 
conclusions, I, I think that we can say that uh, their treatments with lutetium in the vision study that indicate that baseline NOR and the absolute lymphocyte count are important prognostically, not predictably, but prognostically. I think when we look at radium, that you can make an argument that selection by PSMA and PET allows patients to do better, but I do worry that there may be some confounding variables regarding conventional imaging and the baseline volume of disease. And then in the ice cap analysis, I'll simply say that two or three risk factors are worse than one in clinical node positive disease is worse than one when it comes to five-year metastasis-free survival and other endpoints. Professor Sarter, thank you for this comprehensive review. Let's join with your colleagues, Professor Francesco Cecchi and Dr. Heather Jacin, to get their further insights on what these data mean for practice. I would like to welcome our co-faculty from Italy, Francesco Cecchi and Heather Jacin from the USA. And um, Francesco, I think I'll start with you. I wonder if you might have any comments in particular about the vision trial, and then we'll move on to Heather and ask her opinion as well. Thank you, Oliver, for presenting the data. Uh, very interesting. And uh, in my opinion, the new data coming right now from postdoc analysis of the vision trials are absolutely interesting. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, the main focus is was related to the side effects and to uh, secondary endpoints analysis. And in this case, my opinion, the most important data is related to the, even if we uh, considering and stratifying the population according to different factors and different parameters, um, the higher efficacy in terms of uh, overall survival and radiological progression for survival for the um, investigational arm compared to the control arm is maintained. So also stratify the population with different characteristics, the uh, higher efficacy of the lutetium PSMA compared to the standard of care is maintained. In my opinion, this is a very important, um, this is a very important uh, um, concept. And, uh, and it's important also for treating physicians that considering also different characteristics, different side effects and different parameters while treating their patient with the radioligand therapy, the efficacy of lutetium PSMA is maintained compared to the standard of care. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, Heather, any, any comments on the first abstract? Sure. I agree with uh, Professor Cheche. And what was... Uh, also, I agree that you could see the difference between the two arms, but I was trying to think about how we would potentially use that in clinical practice. And I think the abstract also highlights how difficult it is from clinical trials moving into clinical practice that the populations aren't always the same, especially in that first year out from the vision trial where we're seeing patients who perhaps aren't doing as well as they did on the vision trial and how we refine that patient selection. And so this data, perhaps sometimes you have somebody who you're going to give lutetium to, but it's maybe borderline or you're concerned about some of the, if they'll have more adverse events and you might give the lutetium um, because it's better than the standard of care. But if there's somebody maybe borderline 
and you're not sure about, maybe there are these prognostic factors that could help lean you one way or the other, um, or at least kind of raise your suspicion that you need to follow, you follow everybody carefully, um, but maybe stop, you know, being more prepared for adverse events in a certain group and how you counsel the patients initially could be potentially um, useful information from this abstract. Yeah, you know, one of, the, one of the things that's difficult about the vision population, they were so heavily pretreated that had multiple energy receptor pathway inhibitors, often multiple taxanes, and you didn't have a lot of alternatives. And that's one of the difficult things, I think, these sort of in-stage patients is, yes, we can identify four prognostic factors, but we don't really have treatment alternatives to offer them. So that's been... A bit of a conundrum. Um, Heather, I'd like to come back to you on the next abstract that was presented, the radium. And I wonder if you might have any comments on the radium PSMA PET selection versus conventional imaging selection. Um, and if, if that is relevant in your practice. Um, I thought that the results were not surprising, I think, because we know that PSMA is more sensitive uh, than conventional imaging, especially for looking for the uh, nodal and the visceral disease. I thought it was very interesting that, uh, you know, we worry a lot, at least in the um, in the lutetium population about missing liver disease, you know, about missing the liver disease um, for lutetium. And presumably that would be the same with this radium population. And it's surprisingly that the CT, I guess, really didn't pick up a lot of liver disease in the, or the PSMA was, there didn't seem to be a discrepancy between liver disease here on the conventional imaging and the PSMA. So that must have been found in the nodal disease. Um, so I guess I didn't think this was very su surprising um, results. And it makes, I think for this group of patients in general, probably PSMA is gonna show more disease than CT regardless. Mm -hmm. uh, Francesco, any, any uh, comments on the radium abstract? Um, yes, my opinion has already stated uh, the PSMA PET sensitivity in identifying correctly the tumor locations is important to stratify patients. Of course, probably a higher number of patients will be not suitable to radium to radium to three therapy because uh, PSMA identifies more visceral lesions and also better stratified patients. Of course, this analysis is a little bit impaired, as you correctly stated, Oliver, by some confounding factors. However, generally speaking, the use of new generation imaging for uh, as a diagnostic concept, so using the new generation imaging to select patients is also uh, applicable also to radio to three, because PSMA PET can identify more correctly the patient with really early bone disease or candidates to radio. So these results are not surprising and probably encourage us also to use and to adopt more the new generation imaging rather than conventional imaging when we are dealing with the, this new radio ligand therapy. Okay. All right, and now we'll um, briefly move on to the last abstract, non-aradio pharmaceuticals, but looking at prognostic factors. Uh, Francesco, um, 
Did you have any particular comments on this individual patient data meta-analysis of over 3,600 patients? Um, first of all, this is a very interesting abstract and uh, very uh, informative data can be derived from this, uh, this study. In my opinion, I will stress the attention again to the, to the importance of the stratification of patients and the use of new generation imaging because we observed that the presence of Leucono, so the CN1, is very important and there is a, a correlation with the outcome. So also in this case, try to identify as more correct as possible the presence of CN1 is crucial because in particular with the, the previous imaging, so conventional imaging, rather than sensitivity, also specificity and the positive predictive value is important. So the, the importance of the biomarker as diagnostic biomarker is also important. So in this case, the presence of a new generation imaging approach like PSMA-PET uh, with a higher diagnostic accuracy is important to correct, identify CN1 disease. Right. Thank you. Uh, Heather? Yeah, I, I agree. And I thought it was really nice that this could potentially provide information for future design of clinical trials, um, and particularly maybe how you can move from the conventional imaging to better stratification with um, more novel or the, the next generation imaging. Thank you for your valuable insights. Now let's look at expanding the use of PSMA targeting radiopharmaceuticals in prostate cancer. Professor Sata, would you like to review your selected presentations on this topic that were presented at ESMO 2023? We're going to be looking at expanding the use of PSMA targeted radiopharmaceuticals in prostate cancer. And there are a couple of abstracts that were recently presented at ESMO that I think could be of interest to the audience. I'll be covering two abstracts. The first of these is looking at PSMA-targeted alpha therapy, actinium-225, with J591. Now, J591 is a monoclonal antibody to PSMA, and this particular abstract presented by the Cornell Group is going to be looking at prior or no prior PSMA beta-targeted therapy in patients subsequently treated with the PSMA alpha. This is actually a retrospective analysis of patients enrolled on prospective clinical trials. Everybody was treated with the actinium to J591. But here they're going to be breaking down some of the prior therapies, in particular, whether or not they received PSMA lutetium or not, and then beginning to look at the differences and the outcomes. Now, first of all, no prior lutetium was in 64 of the actinium-treated patients, but prior lutetium was present in 21. Now, what makes this a little bit complicated is that there were different doses used for the actinium. Most of the patients in the prior logistic arm actually had single-dose actinium, whereas others were fractionated. It's about equally divided among those with no prior lutetium. Some of the patients had PSMA INT lutetium, not PSMA 617 lutetium, and some of the patients also had pembrolizumab. 
So we've got a little bit of, of mix and matching here between the two groups. Now, in addition to the lutetium as a prior treatment, they were also treated, the majority of these patients were treated with prior taxanes and more than one prior energy receptor pathway inhibitor. And a number of the patients were treated with prior radium as well. So pretty heavily pre-treated patients, which I think is important. Okay, so what do they find? Um, first of all, they found for the patients treated with actinium that the progression-free survival really did not make much difference whether or not the patients had had lutetium 177 PSMA as a pretreatment or not. And furthermore, for overall survival, it did not make any difference for the actinium treated patients if they had prior lutetium or not. And it didn't make any difference if they had prior radium or not in a statistical way. Although there were some trends, these were non-statistically important. Now, that's a little bit interesting, even though there are multiple confounding variables, because what you're seeing here is that the actinium will seem to be active regardless of the prior lutetium. And that we have seen from some of the other studies, but here it puts it down in a, in a little more stark fashion. Now, in addition to the efficacy parameters, there were also toxicity parameters. Grade 3, 4, neutrophils, platelets, anemias were tracked, and a variety of other factors such as fatigue, nausea, pain, serostomia. And it turns out that whether or not you had prior lutetium or not, that the AEs were pretty similar between the two arms, those with and without prior lutetium. So there's an interesting bit of information here that at least with J591 actinium-225, there's not a lot of difference. Okay, now we're going to move on to the separate study, and this is a phase two trial of lutetium pre and post taxane. And what we have here is 145 patients that were treated, and these were divided between two different groups, pre-taxane, uh, there was actually 42, I'm sorry, 142 patients, not 145, and post-taxane were 100. So most of the patients were post-taxane, and most of the patients had had at least one energy receptor pathway inhibitor. And these were looked at with regard to progression-free survival and overall survival. And it turns out that there's a pretty significant difference as to whether or not patients were pre- or post-taxane in this study. And this was conducted, by the way, with an interim analysis of about 28 months. So the median PFS was 8.5 versus 6.0 months, superior in the taxane naive. And the same was true for overall survival. There's a striking difference, 35 months of survival versus 12.6. And one of the conclusions you might be able to draw is that you've got activity in both of these settings. Now, the toxicities overall 
from the PSMA Lutetium were fairly similar. Uh, there was what I thought was a bit of an oddity over having the pre-tax same patients having a higher proportion of acute kidney uh, damage, but I, I, I don't really understand that, and we haven't seen that in other studies. But for thrombocytopenia, uh, perhaps a little more in the post-tax same setting. Uh, neutropenia, no difference. Leukopenia, maybe a tad more, but not much. And anemia, pretty much the same. So interestingly, clear activity in the pre-tax setting. Of course, we're going to see that in the phase three studies as we go forward. Conclusions that I might make from these two abstracts are, number one, that the J591 actinium retains activity whether or not you've had PSMA lutetium targeted therapy beforehand or not. And the same is true for radium. And I'll simply say that the lutetium uh, was found to be quite effective in the taxane naive patients in the second abstract. However, uh, to me, that's not necessarily a surprise. Thank you, Professor Sarta, for your review. Let's ask Professor Francesco Cecchi and Dr. Heather Jacin to share their thoughts on these data. So let's move on to our discussion. And uh, first of all, I'd like to call on Dr. Heather Jacin uh, from Boston, Data Farber, to comment. And let's start off, if you don't mind, Heather, with the Actinium 225J591 abstract. Sure. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sartor, for presenting the data. I think that the abstract on the actinium J59 really highlights that there is safety in giving sequential radiopharmaceuticals. It doesn't really talk about which one you give first, but they are efficacious um, and, and you can give them multiple, you can give them in sequence over time. I think it also highlights that we don't really know the organ toxicity with these radiopharmaceuticals. A lot of what we know about the organ toxicity is based on external beam radiation therapy that's extrapolated to these radiopharmaceuticals and the same limits may uh, may not apply here. And so I think this opens up the door uh, for further research about how uh, how many and how safe it is to give these uh, cumulative over time, just like you would think about different chemotherapeutic agents. Uh, thank you, Heather. And now to introduce Dr. Francesco Cecchi from Italy. And uh, Francesco, welcome. And I wonder if you might have any comments on the J591 abstract. Thank you, Oliver, uh, for presenting this abstract. In my opinion, this abstract is very important because, you know, as a treating physician, as a nuclear medicine physician, treating the patient, we are sometimes scared about the, the sequence. So treating alpha after beta or beta after alpha. And this, uh, this study actually provides us uh, some mm, consistent data about the safety. So treating patient with the alpha radiation after beta radiation is safe. So also the side effects compared to patient already received lutetion to patient with not received lutetion are similar. So from our point of view, these data are important because it gave us um, support to treat patient also with the further lines of radioligand therapy after lutetium PSMA. 
Thank you, Francesco. You know, one of the things I'll point out for our listeners is this is a Kinium 225J591. It's a monoclonal antibody. And it has not been broadly used in multi-institutional trials, but I think we'll see more coming from this. Most of the actinium data presented, particularly from Germany, South Africa, has been using PSMA 617 actinium or PSMA INT actinium, both of which are small molecules. So we may have to look a little bit more at the small molecules. Now, uh, Francesco, I'd like to get your comments, if you don't mind, on that second abstract we presented. And this was dividing the PSMA lutetium treating patients into taxane naive and taxane experienced. What were your conclusions regarding that abstract? Uh, my opinion, this study actually provides results about difference in terms of pre-chemo and post-chemo setting. Uh, the results of the vision trials are applied to patients already treated with chemo or evilly treated patients. In this case, we have the chance to see and to observe data about the pre-chemo setting. Of course, as you mentioned, as you stated, it's quite uh, unclear uh, the rate of uh, kidney injury, kidney failure in this cohort of patients, and maybe the data deserve to be more explored and more analyzed in uh, um, more details. But, but at the same time, say it was uh, incredible the difference in terms of overall survival between the pre-chemo and post-chemo setting. In this case, in my opinion, the anticipation of uh, treatment with uh, radioligand therapy is important because it may uh, avoid in the future the radio resistance induced by the chemo. So in this case also, the treatment was feasible, uh, the side effects were comparable, and according to the study, the efficacy could be better in the pre-chemo setting compared to the post-chemo. Thank you very much, Francesco. I enjoyed those remarks. Uh, Heather, um, with regard to the pre- and post-taxane lutetium abstract, comments, insights you might offer to our listeners? Um, I, I don't have very much more to add, I'll admit, based on uh, what Dr. Chechi and you have already uh, commented on. I agree that the um, renal toxicity is unusual and we'll really have to, I think we'll talk about um, some of the other studies that are also coming out. But again, I think that this not surprisingly shows that when you give the radio pharmaceuticals earlier in the line, uh, that this um, has a lot of benefit for the patients uh, over, overall. Right. Um, well, thank you, uh, Dr. Jacine. Um, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Chechi, for your comments. Uh, that'll conclude this portion of the panel. And thank you to our listeners who have managed, hopefully, to learn a little bit about J5.1 actinium and the use of PSMA-targeted radiopharmaceuticals in particular. Thank you. Thank you for your interesting insights. Professor Sarter, let's move on to the next section on novel agents and combination approaches to the use of PSMA-targeted radiopharmaceuticals in prostate cancer. So first of all, I would like to discuss the Phase 3 PSMA-4 trial. Now, the VISION trial, which I think many people might be familiar with, is in the post-taxane metastatic CRPC setting, but those patients also have received one or two or maybe even more 
second generation ARPIs, typically Avaratoroner and Salutamide. In the PSMA 4 trial, there was no taxane allowed unless it was given neoadjuvantly or adjuvantly more than 12 months ago, and that was an extremely small number of patients. But all the patients had to have PSMA PET positive disease, metastatic CRPC, with progression after at least one second generation ARPI. The majority of these were actually abiraterone and a slight minority in the 40% range were treated with insulutamide prior to the protocol therapy. All the patients had to have a good performance status. It was a one-to-one randomization to either RP change, typically Avianza ends up being the most commonly utilized here, or the PSMA lutetium. Now, this is different than vision. In vision, it was standard of care plus or minus lutetium here it is lutetium versus the ARPI change. Very importantly, there was the opportunity for patients on the hormonal therapy to cross over if they had radiographic progression documented by bonded independent central review. Now, 585 patients were screened, 505 were eligible, by the way, PSMA PET positivity was confirmed ineligible in 92% of those who had the PSMA PET scan. And then the patients were randomized, 234 in each arm. And very importantly, and I want to stress this from the beginning, that those individuals on the hormonal change could cross over to lutetium. And 84% of those that were eligible and that means they were on hormonal therapy, discontinued in radiographic progression. 84% of those eligible in the hormonal arm crossed over to receive the lutetium. Now, primary endpoint was RPFS, unequivocally met, as presented at ASMO, has ratio 0.43. The updated RPFS presented at ASMO was 12.02 months, and the lutetium arm 5.59 months in the hormonal arm. So more than a doubling of the RPFS. Objective response rate, 50.7% in the lutetium arm, 14.9% in the hormonal arm. Median duration of response was longer for those in the lutetium arm. Now, overall survival was a little bit interesting because there was a crossover adjusted overall survival that had a hazard ratio of 0.8. The intended treat was 1.16. In other words, a slight deficit for those in the uh, lutetium arm. However, the confidence intervals were large. And when we look at the number of events, that it turns out that only about 29% of the participants had actually met the overall survival endpoint. By the way, the median, even though it's relatively immature, looking at a median of about 12 months follow-up, the median overall survival was a little over 19 months in each arms. There were also health-related quality of life parameters that favored lutetium, uh, pain parameters that favored lutetium. And when we looked at the treatment emergent adverse events, it was a little bit of a surprise. The grade three, four adverse events were lower in the lutetium arm the SAE, serious adverse events, were lower in the lutetium arm. 
And the AEs lead to dose adjustment or lower the lutetium arm, 3% versus 15% in the hormonal arm. Now, it's not to say that there were no differences in the side effects because certain things, the grade one and grade two of side effects, could be actually more common in the lutetium arm. And these were GI side effects or they were side effects related to dry mouth as a whole. All right. Conclusion on the phase three, unequivocal positive in RPFS, better AEs, secondary endpoints, including PSA overall response rate, better. However, intent to treat OS analysis, 1.16, whereas the crossover adjusted was 0.8. And that, I think, is worthy of discussion. Next, we're going to move over to the ends of P trial presented by Liz Emmett uh, from Sydney, Australia. And this is a prospective randomized phase two trial looking at poor prognosis patients with metastatic CRPC who are eligible for enzalutamide as a first-line metastatic CRPC treatment. And there were a variety of factors that went into this poor prognosis. Uh, but to basically sum it up, these are patients that have been previously characterized in having a higher risk of progression in the PREVAIL trial and others. Bottom line, the patients, 220 were screened, 162 were randomized, all PSMA had selected. These patients are well-balanced between the two arms. A uh, significant percentage had greater than 20 PSMA avid metastatic lesions, and the majority of these patients were actually de novo metastatic at the time that they were diagnosed. Now, even though these patients did not receive docentaxel as part of metastatic CRPC treatment, many of the patients, in fact, the majority of the patients, had previously received docetaxel for hormone-sensitive disease, similar to charted. Now, another thing that was a little bit interesting is that there was adaptive dosing that was utilized in this particular arm. Now, adaptive dosing means that you could halt the dosing if, in fact, you wanted to halt because you had a complete response and then give a little more later. So what did they find? For the PSA progression-free survival, there was a 13-month versus 7.8-month differential favoring the enzalutamide and lutetium combination over the enzalutamide alone. The radiographic progression-free survival by Dr. Emmett's admission was not perfectly performed but it still favored the lutetium plus enzalutamide arm. However, the confidence intervals very slightly overlapped one. The hazard ratio was 0.67, differential was 16 versus 12 months, but I'm gonna simply say it's a flawed analysis according to Dr. Emmett. No doubt about the PSA 50 and PSA 90, however, the PSA 50 for the combination of lutetium and enzalutamide was 93 versus 68% for enzalutamide alone. And the combination for PSA 90 was 78% versus 37% for 
early tissue Malone. And remember this, she used the adaptive dosing. Now, the AEs of interest, there was a little more anemia in the combination arm, more dry mouth in the combination arm. A few more of the patients had thrombocytopenia or lower white count, but the SAEs were identical between the two arms. And essentially, the grades four and five AEs were pretty similar between the two arms. So in conclusion, it looked like in terms of PSA response rate, without a doubt, that the combination of lutetium and insulutamide was better than insulutamide alone in these poor-risk metastatic CRPC patients. Professor Sarter, thank you for your review of these two important trials. Professor Francesco Cecchi and Dr. Heather J. Seen will now join you to discuss their implications for prostate cancer care. So I think what we're going to do is to move over to the discussion right now. And I wonder if we'll call on Francesco first to make comments and your conclusions about the PSMA 4 trial, the randomized phase 3 trial first, then we'll go to heaven. Thank you, Oliver, for the introduction and for presenting this very important data. In my opinion, the PSMA4 was one of the most interesting overall abstract presented in the last ASMO because the results were strong, were reliable, and gave us the um, information about the efficacy of the radioligand therapy in the pre-chemo setting. So even if uh, your consideration were absolutely right, regarding the intention to treat and the median overall survival and your comments as well. In my opinion, uh, the efficacy can be uh, derived also from the radiological progression free and uh, the other and the other outcomes. And in this case, the efficacy of the radioligand therapy compared to the standard of care arm, so the, the, the control arm was definitely better. And at the same time, so also we confirm also the safety profile that is at least comparable for lutetium PSMA compared to ARPI. So the PSMA4 are very strong and very reliable data, data about the efficacy of uh, the radioligand therapy in this setting. Thank you very much, Francesco. Um, Heather, comments on the PSMA4 trial? I agree with uh, Dr. Chachi's comments and that it's a very exciting study um, since it's been uh, and it clearly shows the efficacy of the lutetium in the pre-taxane setting. I have heard a lot of discussion since ESMO about the choice of the standard of care arm as it's a, a switch from the uh, from the ARPI as, as opposed to chemotherapy. But I think that uh, there are patients who can't receive chemotherapy and what this trial really does is it opens it adds another drug in the armentarium for for medical oncologists to consider uh in, in an earlier setting if a patient is unable to receive chemotherapy i'm clearly showing the efficacy and again it doesn't address necessarily uh sequence sequencing of of the agents um and I wanted to also tie in the second abstract with the um, adaptive dosing. I know we weren't going to go there, but I think also to that adaptive dosing uh, is quite interesting, especially as you move, you know, into the earlier setting, which both studies seem to show um, has efficacious and a, a good safety and toxicity profile. Uh, thank you, Heather. Let me drill down on that a little bit more. I think it's an interesting comment. 
you know, within the vision trial and the Pittsman 4 trial, there was a fixed dose of the lutetium. And I know that for those patients who may have a dramatic response, there's a lot of question about whether or not you should continue to dose, even though you may have already had a complete response. I wonder if you might elaborate on that in a little more detail about your own practice and perhaps bringing in the NZP study just as contrast. So I think this is of interest for our listeners. Yeah, I, and I'll tell you in our own practice, right? So I think there's a lot of different ways that you can potentially look at the response. Um, one of the benefits of theranostics in general is our ability to image the disease and see what's still still what's there and whether you see it, you can you can treat it. Um, you can do this by either doing subsequent PET scans, which may not be feasible, at least in the United States, to have them at different time points, but you can also use post-therapy imaging as a surrogate to uh, image what you image the treatment that you give. And right. I think that more in, in our practice, we've actually just started doing this. I know a lot of other places are doing it routinely after each cycle. Um, and if there's no disease left to see on an image, if you're giving another dose, you might be causing more toxicity than more efficacy. Um, I think some of the, there are still some of the limitations of a spec scan with resolution. Um, and I don't know that we know in prostate cancer, for example, if you don't see something on a spec scan, whether there's not disease there um, at the time and waiting for, uh, till you see it biochemically kind of rise again. I don't know that we know the optimal time point, but I think that we haven't necessarily use theranostics for precision oncology and really personalizing the uh, the dose for individual patients as much as we can yet uh, with theranostics, and there's still a lot of space to take over in there. Um, Francesco, um, I'm just curious in Milan about adapted dosing or fixed dosing. I wonder if you might comment on that. And then secondarily, I'll ask you to comment on NZP before we come back to Heather. So two comments, adaptive dosing, and then NZP, uh, and your impressions. Uh, in our clinical practice, we are uh, committed to fixed dose. So even if the um, adaptive dose may be a solution or another option for treating patients, <laughs> currently uh, we are allowed to treat patients just with fixed doses. This is what we do. Uh, considering the NZP, in my opinion, the, be the best result, the best information that can derive by this study are related to the, effects, the um, side effects. Because this is one of the first trials in, we, we, in which we uh, present data about combination therapy. So actually, we have one heart with just the, the, the ARPI and the other one with the combination. And the side effects, of course, are slightly higher but totally acceptable. Of course, patients treated with lutetium, they experience dry mouth, as dry mouth is not a side effects of the enzalutamide, but the overall other side effects are just slightly higher in the investigation compared to the control arm. And this slight higher uh, increase of um, side effects is totally acceptable considering the combination therapy design of the investigation arm. Great. Uh, thank you, Francesco. Now, 
right, Heather, back to you. And I'd like you to focus on the ends of P for a moment. What conclusions or insights might you have to offer to our to our listeners? I thought that it shows that you can combine lutetium with other agents and that those are worth exploring um, and that the safety profile, um, when you're combining them, considering kind of the safety different um, safety profiles of each would be important to do that. But again, it shows that you can give lutetium earlier, um, not just at the, at the late stage, and that it's of interest to combine it with other potential agents um, to look for synergy and that it it does, um, it, it can improve um, some of the efficacy that we see and could maybe prolong the time to the next therapy um, that somebody is going to get, which could impact the quality of life. Right. All right, we are time to make a brief summary. And Francesco, on these two abstracts, give me briefly your take home and then to Heather for the same. So any take home on these two abstracts, uh, Francesco? Um, take home message is that treating patient, the pre setting with radioligand therapy is effective and feasible. And uh, we don't have to be worried about combination therapy especially when we combine radioligand therapy with the tissue PSMA with the ARPI uh, agent. Okay. Thank you. Heather, any, any brief summary comments? So just that the, the number of drugs that are available now for patients, I think with metastatic prostate cancer is increasing and it's going to be nice to be able to have uh, you know, a lot of thought, a thought for patient specific, which drug is uh, most effective um, and least toxic for a patient at a very particular point of the time of their disease. Thank you. And I'll, I'll make one sort of cautionary remark uh, the regulators will need to opine on the phase three PSMA four trial. It's not yet available commercially in the pre-taxane metastatic CRPC space. So until the regulators actually issue an opinion, uh, I don't think we'll have any commercial use, at least covered by insurance in the United States. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you to Dr. Jassine, thank you to Dr. Chechi for their comments, and thank you for your listening, and hopefully those who've managed to come through this particular module have been able to gain some insights on the PSMA-4 and NZP trial. Thank you again for listening. Thank you all for your expert insights on new and emerging data for radiopharmaceuticals in advanced prostate cancer from ESMO 2023. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this topic on Touch Oncology at www.touchoncology.com. Mm-hmm.